Before I get into the reading of the passage itself in John chapter 6, if you're still uh, looking for that, you're going to find it on page 947 in those uh, black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Um, Before I do that, I've just got to teach you three things or make you aware of three things. It's going to take me a second here because to come to this passage without these three things clear in your mind, you may miss the full weight of what, what's going on here because, you know, we're 2,000 years later, many of us have had swim lessons, and we're not going to see everything we need to see. So uh, what are the three things? Swim lessons, what is he talking about? Let me answer that. That's the first thing. The first thing is water is scary. Still to this day, and definitely throughout human history, water is terrifying to most people. There's like a, like a tiny sliver of people who have grown up with swim lessons in the last 70 years where water is not terrifying. But you should be terrified of water. <clears throat> Let me tell you a story. Uh, when I was in high school, some of you have heard this story, but when I was in high school, me and my buddies in the summer used to like uh, go up uh, just about, just out, kind of outside of Mount Vernon, Bellingham, if you go a little further east and you come to uh, the Nooksack River. Has anyone ever floated the Nooksack River? My people. So we would go and you'd buy some old, uh, you know, truck tire inner tubes and they had a, a little gas station there and you could fill up your tubes and you'd walk down to the river and you'd float the river. And what I've got to tell you, if you're from Texas, is our rivers are not like your rivers. I've also floated a river in Texas. And that thing is moving so slow, it's basically like a kiddie pool because you've got no elevation. Now the Nooksack River gets some speed. Not a lot of speed, but a little bit of speed. And it's fresh water, and it's cold water. It's not like floating the river in Texas. So just for you Texans, I just want to help you picture this. So me and my buddies are going, and, and we had that year <clears throat> made a new friend, a guy by the name of J.R. Now, J.R. wasn't from Washington. He wasn't even from Texas. He'd never floated the river. He was from Georgia. And J.R. didn't like water much. In fact, J.R. didn't know how to swim. And so the water was as terrifying as it should have been to JR. And so we put JR first and foremost in a full wetsuit <laughs> because it's cold. And then we put JR in a life jacket. And then we convinced JR to sit in this tube and just let the river take him. <laughs> like that's how he said, just let the river take you. And he's like, what? <laughs> like that's not safe. Why are we doing this? Now, about halfway through the trip, J.R. is starting to get a little bit confident, and we can't, because this is the other thing you don't have in, in Texas rivers, we had had some trees that had fallen over the river, and so it was obvious to those of us who had floated before, the thing you got to do is get out of the river, walk around this big pile of trees, this little dam that had been created, and then walk on the other side. Well, J.R., starting to like the waters, feeling pretty good, doesn't realize this is what you're supposed to do. And his tube is taken into the brambles, and he gets stuck underneath this log. And he starts to get sucked under. And his tube's going under, and he's going under, and he's getting stuck. And he just screams out at the the top of his lungs, help, help. And you can tell, I mean, he's terrified. I'm, I'm, I run up to, I run, I get up on the shore, I run down the beach, I'm able to wade out. The water's not that deep, you know, maybe, maybe four feet. And I'm able to grab him, grab a hold of me, and I pull him out of the river. And I've never had somebody as, and this is to your shame, I've never had anybody this thankful for anything I've done in my life. <laughs> I mean, JR was so thankful to me. He, I mean, he's like, I owe you my life. And I'm like, I mean, it's only four feet. I just walked in. I just grabbed you. Like, but because he had the proper understanding that water equals death, he knew that I had done something important for him. Um, can't go into it, but he did write me a rap song that had... Danger, Evanger, as sort of the chorus. So it's sort of become a nickname for me. Danger, Evanger. Okay. Can't go into it right now. I don't have time for that. 
I had more time. So water is dangerous. So if you go to the very end of your Bible in Revelation 21, we got it up on the screen here. Revelation 21, I'll read it to you. It says this strange thing. Revelation is all about this vision that God gives to the same writer of the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, this vision of the future. And he's talking about when Jesus comes back and then it says the heavenly Jerusalem comes to earth and all things are remade. And he says this interesting thing. So let me read it to you. So he's having this this divine vision that God's given him and told him to write down. He writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And you could read that in our age and be like, wait, there's no water in heaven? There's no sea? I love the sea. I love going down to the beach. I love the ocean. Why wouldn't we want that? Because you don't understand that water equals death. That's what John's saying. To, to, to ancient folks, the sea was the picture of death. So, so John's saying in the Revelation, he's saying, I saw and death was no more. No longer were we terrified to be on the water. I think there'll be water in heaven. It's one of God's greatest creations. But death will be no more. No worries, JR. You don't need me because you've got Jesus. So that's the first thing. You've got to understand what water was and how it was viewed. And not everybody got swim lessons at three years old. And this is scary stuff. The second thing that you need, that, that you might not realize, is that walking on water is rare. Like, this is why I need to tell you this. You've heard that Jesus walked on water, and you just sort of move on with your day. Like, that's like pretty normal. But you've become numb to this fact that, wait, he walked on what? He walked on the water, on the waves. But see, you've heard that story so many times, whether you're a church person or not, that you're like, oh yeah, I know Jesus walked on water. No, he walked on water, people. Again, if you don't know much about water, that's rare. And I just wonder if, if for the people that hear, heard these stories for the very first time, they probably had a very different reaction than we have. Because it wasn't in just sort of the folklore of the society. So... It got me thinking, like, do you remember a time when you heard or, or you saw some athletic feat, for, for instance, that was so rare that you just had to go around and tell everybody about it? Like, did you see that? Do you remember that? I, I, some of you might remember this. Some of you might not. It was uh, undefeated New England Patriots in the Super Bowl versus the New York Giants and a guy named David Tyree caught the ball in his helmet, basically, and they won the game. Does anybody remember that Super Bowl? I mean, just, like, I, like did you see that, right? Everyone say, I can't believe that. I remember where I was. You remember where you were. And here's the unfortunate thing. Do you remember where you were? Maybe today is the first time you've heard this, so that would be great. Put it in your calendar. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard that Jesus walked on water? Can you remember that? Like, why can I remember this mediocre wide receiver catching a ball in a really unimportant game? I can remember where I was, but I don't remember where I was when I heard that Jesus walked on water. What's going on? Why can't I remember that? So the thing I want you to, when we read this story, I, I need you to try to recover your, sen- your, uh, your sense of what? What? Like, uh, try to read this as if you've never read it before. As if you're watching a highlight on ESPN, or you're watching the, the local news, you're like, wait, what happened? We're losing our sense of what? This is incredible. Okay, so the third thing, 
This is a long list of things. But the third thing you need to know is that all of history and all of Scripture have been paving and preparing the way for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the sign that we'll see today, the walking on water, is the fifth sign in John's seven signs of Jesus revealing himself. But all of history and all of Scripture has been preparing for this. And that's part of why when we come in and we read it, we only see it in one aspect. But the people who would have heard about this for the first time, they see it in a much fuller historical and scriptural picture. So to prepare you for that, I need to read you some scriptures that will help you prepare the way to read John chapter 6. You ready? Okay, so the first is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The very first three verses of the Bible. So throw that up on the screen here, Jack, and, and, and we'll go. And we'll read through these fairly quickly. I won't explain them. But just take them in. Sort of like, I need you to get to the place where the hearers would have been because they would have remembered all of these scriptures and all of these stories. Okay, Genesis 1. This is the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, he created the universe. Now, in this universe was our earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness, if you're taking notes, underline darkness, covered the surface of the watery depths. So you have darkness, watery depths. And the Spirit of who? Of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, John himself, in his preface to his gospel, brings us back into that Genesis 1 frame. So I want to read you what John has already... We've already studied this. You can go back and listen when we talked about this. John 1.5, John says this, That light, which shines in the dark... It shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And John goes on to say that light is who? Jesus. Okay. So clearly John has this framework of Genesis and creation and surface of the watery depths and darkness and chaos and God hovering over that and speaking into it and bringing about order. Now, then fast forward who knows how many years to Exodus chapter 3 and we have Moses. Moses, the most famous and important person to the Jewish people, when he first encounters God in the burning bush. So I'm going to read that to you, and I want you to listen and read with me. Here it is. Chapter 3, 3 to 6. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb. That's also Mount Sinai, another name for Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of God. Then the angel, and that's just the he- angel is just the Hebrew word for messenger of the Lord, the angel messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. So this is very important. Don't miss this because we'll come back to this. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame and it says God called out to him. So who's the angel of the Lord? God. One and the same. So Moses answered, here I am. God said, do not come closer. Why not? God said, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
Then if we skip down to verse 13 of the same chapter, Moses goes on to hear instructions from the Lord, God giving him instructions that I'm going to use you to rescue my people. Then we get to verse 13. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. So if I go to them and say, Follow me, I'm going to take you out of slavery. The God of your ancestors has sent me. That's what he's saying. And they ask me, What is your name? What should I tell them? And God replied. He said, Moses, tell them, I am who I am. And that's where we get the name Yahweh, which is Hebrew, I am, I am. Yahweh, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. It's very important. You'll see in a second. Okay. So Moses goes and he does all this and they follow him. And ten plagues come on, on Pharaoh. We did a whole series in the Exodus. You can listen to it. One of my favorite series we've ever done here. And they get, now they're fleeing, and then they run into, guess what? Death in the form of the Red Sea. Water that they cannot swim across. They have no boats to go across. And the army of Pharaoh is chasing them. Death is at the doorstep. So this is Exodus 14, 21 to 22. I'll read it to you. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea because the Lord told him to. And it says this, the Lord drove the sea back. Not Moses. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful west wind or east wind all night and then turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left because God has power over his creation. And the Israelites are rescued through the water. Okay, now, if you keep reading, then you hear about this Great incident that will be really important this week and next week. So I want to read it to you. Exodus 16, 2-4. Now, the Israelite, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Next week we'll see that the people grumble against Jesus. This will be important. And the Israelites said to them, that's the leadership, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. They're grumbling. Why'd you bring us out here, God? Into the open desert. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. People are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And so for all 40 years of, of Israel in the, in, the, in the desert, God rained bread from heaven. They called it manna, and they ate, and they were full, and they were satisfied. Does it remind you of last week's sermon when Jesus fed the 5,000? Okay. Now, in Job 9.8, we read this. Job has quite a wrestle with God. God brings him through some very difficult storms, more than any human that's ever existed. You could read Job. It says this, He, God, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So there's this notion in the Israelite mindset that God is so powerful that he can tread on the waves of the sea. And then Psalm one. 107.30 says this, They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he, that's God, guided them to the harbor they longed for. This is in the song book of the Israelites. The great songs of God's people. The waves grew quiet and God guided them to the harbor they longed for. Okay. So those are the three things you need to remember as we now read a story that is so familiar to many of us, but hopefully will take on new flavor. You ready? John 6, verse 16. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, 
and started across the sea of Capernaum. Oh, sorry, to Capernaum. So it's probably they're cutting a corner off of the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a really big lake. Like, probably like the size of Lake Tahoe, if you've ever been to Lake Tahoe. And if you cut across, I'm guessing it's about a six-mile journey the way they traveled from one city to Capernaum. That's where they were going. It says, Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed for about three or four miles like two-thirds of the way there, they saw Jesus, wait, what? Walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But, but he said to them, they're running away, they're running away. Okay. Wait. Where did I even come up with that? I think I literally just, that's not, okay. So, they're, so after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near to the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Do you know what the Greek actually says? Ego eimi. I am. I am. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Okay. What? He walked on water? Now, why are they alone in the boat? That's the first question you should be asking yourself. Like, why didn't Jesus just get in the boat with him? Just to show off. The answer is no. Why does Jesus compel them to go without him? If you read Matthew and Mark, you get a little bit more of the dialogue here. Jesus goes and he says, I'm going to go into the mountains and I want you guys to go on your own and I'll meet you in Capernaum. Why does he compel them? Why does he want his disciples to go alone? This is so important to understand this. Jesus realizes that they need some more revelation. Sometimes God needs to take us out into the open sea before we'll realize what he's been trying to say to us all along. So he's been trying to tell his disciples he's more than just a prophet, that he's actually God. But they're just not getting it. And so... Sometimes God has to take us to the open sea before we'll really start listening. And so I think what's going on, it seems to me that, remember what was happening at the end of the last uh, encounter. Read it with me in verse 15, just above where we just read. Jesus had just fed the 5,000, actually verse 14. And it says, when the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet and there was, this, there was this expectation that this new prophet would come. And they, that prophet would, would be the one that would, would do, in some ways, what Moses had done for them already. And so it says this, Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountains by himself. And so we talked about that last week. They wanted a king who could feed the army and, and who and the army then could conquer the Romans, and then they could take back their land. And Jesus said, I came to do something totally different than just you get your power back. I came to give you a new kind of power, a new kind of life, true forgiveness from sin. And and they didn't get it, and so he had to withdraw. And I think some of his disciples, if not all of them, kind of were on the side of the, let's make you king, Jesus, because they didn't quite get just how different he was from the prophet. He's way more than a prophet. So Jesus takes him to the open sea because he needs to reveal something more to them in more obvious terms so that they can start to see that he's not just the next great prophet or next great king, but that he's actually something more. Okay. 
So this is the fifth sign, and it uniquely reveals something that hasn't become obvious. What is it that it reveals? I've got two things that it reveals, that the other signs haven't. The first is it becomes very obvious that Jesus is greater than Moses. So this prophet, there's not a sense that the prophet's greater than Moses or other than Moses, just the prophet, one like Moses. But Jesus is going to make it really clear through this miracle and the last miracle that he is greater than Moses. He's in a different category than Moses. I am greater than Moses, Jesus says. Now, Jesus had already said this, right? You remember Ryan's sermon in chapter 5. We can look at that real quick. Chapter 5, verse 45, Jesus actually uses Moses and says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. But if you don't believe the words Moses wrote, you won't believe my words. And he says, Moses is going to be the one that accuses you because he was predicting and preparing for me. Well, if you're writing about somebody else, that somebody else is greater than you. So he's already said it, but now he has to prove it because it's not sinking in. He needs to prove it to them. So how does he prove it? To prove it, Jesus replicates manna from heaven. Right? He's just done that. He's fed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He's fed them all, and there's, there's 12 baskets left over, just like in the wilderness. They were to gather up all the extras because there's so much. Are you seeing the parallels here? Not only does he do that, now when he comes walking on the sea, what, what would they be thinking? Wait, Jesus commands the sea? That reminds me of the wilderness and the people of Israel. And then as we'll see next week, and yet the people still grumble. All of these things would remind the reader that Jesus is greater than Moses. Why is he greater than Moses and just not another Moses? The the key difference is what? Who parted the Red Sea? Moses? No, the Lord. Who brought bread from heaven? Moses? No, the Lord. Jesus brings it himself. Jesus walks on the water himself. Jesus is revealing that he is God. And it would have become very apparent that he's not just another Moses. Which brings me to the next and and ultimate revelation proved is that Jesus wanted to reveal himself as the I Am. He wants them to know that he is the I am that was in the burning bush. He wants to proclaim to them in the same voice that Moses heard that God is speaking. And what's he say? It's so similar to the burning bush. Did you catch it? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Ego I me. I am. Don't be afraid. The personal name of God given to Moses is the name that Jesus invokes when he says, don't be afraid. So the same God that was hovering over the chaos of the waters in Genesis 1, that spoke light into the darkness, that is now speaking light into this darkness, says, I am. And brings order. And we read in Mark and Matthew and calms the sea. This is the same angel or messenger of the Lord who spoke person to person with Moses. He is the messenger of God. How does John put it? The Word of God. So Jesus is not This is why it's important to say the Hebrew word for angel is not angel. It wasn't an angel in the bush. It was God in the bush. It was the word of God in the bush. It was the messenger of God in the bush. 
And in the same way, the Word became flesh who now speaks to the twelve disciples who represent the twelve tribes of Israel is the message incarnate. The message of the Lord. See it? The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is the message, the Word in the flesh. In a way that's way more approachable and understandable than a bush that's on fire. We can see Him, we can watch Him, we can model our life after Him. He's the message of the Lord walking in our midst. Wow. Now, here's the truly universe-shaking difference, though, between the two scenes, the burning bush and Jesus on the water. What is it? What did Moses have to do in the face of the burning bush? Removed his sandals. What did Moses do when he saw the glory of God? He had to hide his face. It was, he, he couldn't look right at it. It was too overwhelming. His presence was too holy. The fear separated him in some degree from God. Yet here in the boat, there's still great fear. Here in in Jesus, there's still great holiness. But something is different. There's a key word. Did you you see the word? Jesus, this is in, in verse 19. Jesus was coming near the boat. When the Word, when the the message of God took on flesh through the incarnation, when Jesus became the God-man, fully God and fully human, something happened in this overwhelming process. The humility of God to take on flesh created the necessary scenario that God can now come near to us even in a way that He couldn't come near to Moses and His people in the wilderness. There always had to be a barrier. But now, Jesus is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And He can come near to us. We don't have to hide our face from Him. He can get into our boat. That's crazy. That's amazing. That's God's love. That's the thing you need to see the difference. Jesus has now made God available to us in a way that he wasn't even to Moses in the burning bush. The same I am, the same messenger of God, the second person of the Trinity, but now he can come near to us in a way he couldn't before. All made possible by God humbling himself to take on the form even of a human being. And then, of course, he'll humble himself even to die on a cross. Wow. So he's near. He's standing just outside the boat. The waves, the chaos, the darkness, and yet there's Jesus. But he's standing outside the boat. See that? What is he asking? Can I board your ship? Can I come aboard? But guess who gets to choose? The disciples get to choose. This is, this is wild. Let's read it again. Verse 19 to 21. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they weren't getting anywhere. They're in the open sea. They're scared. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat. And now they're even more afraid. (laughs) But he said to them, I am. Don't be afraid. Then, only then, were they willing to take him on board. And at once the boat went to the shore where they were headed. They invite him on. They say, yes, 
We see your holiness. We see that you're walking on water. We see that you're doing things only God can do. And yes, we want you to come on board. The holy, other, perfect author of all things has become one of us so that he can come near to us so that the message that has become flesh can ask us, can I float with you? We who are poor, weak, powerless, unable to resist our own selfish desire, our own desire for autonomy from this God, are yet, like Jonah, given a second chance. We flee from God, and He pursues us and says, are you sure you don't want me to go with you? He interrupts our running, our hiding, and makes Himself known and gives us a new choice, a new decision. Would you like me to come on board? I don't need to, Jesus says. Like, I don't need this. I can walk on water. I'm not tired of walking. That's not why I need a ride. <laughs> like, make sure you don't miss that. It's not like, ugh. But you know what? I'd like to help you. I'd like to keep your company. I'd enjoy riding with you. Would you like that too? This is what he asks. I just love the way verse 21 is worded. In some translations it says, and they received him. And I like how the, the, the CSB says it. They were willing to receive Christ onto your ship, onto your vessel, into your life, takes an act of the will. It's not an act of the mind. Like the mind may be there, or the mind might not yet be there. You might still be totally confused about who this guy is that can walk on water. But if the will is ready, Jesus can be received. I don't know, I've got a lot of baggage, and the church has hurt me a lot, and I've known some Christians that are pretty bad, and Jesus comes to you and he says, don't worry about them, does your will want me to come on board? Are you willing to invite Jesus in? And here's the beautiful thing. The disciples were willing, and, and throughout their story they were willing. They didn't quite know, they had doubts, like maybe he would be a better general, a king, and he can feed people, and we can take the Romans by force, or, you know, all, and they were still wrestling with it, but at the end of the day, they always had willing hearts, and they let Jesus engage with them in the way Jesus was asking. Jesus never coerced them, forced himself on them, took ownership of the boat and says, you know, I own all things and that's my boat and get out of my way. He doesn't do that. He invites them to invite him. And they were willing. And this is the beautiful thing. When Jesus came on board, they weren't lost anymore. They were still in the open sea. They were still miles from their destination. But they weren't lost anymore. And that's what happens to us as well. As soon as we invite Jesus on board, even if we're still in the wilderness, even if we're still at the in open sea, we're not lost anymore. We're found. Have you experienced that? Maybe the circumstances haven't changed at all, but you don't feel lost anymore because Jesus is on board. The God of the universe is on board. The I am who I am is on board. The message of God is on board. And you're not lost anymore. I've experienced that. Now perhaps the most offensive and difficult part of grace to understand is this. 
that we are the ones given the choice to invite God in. Why do I say offensive, difficult? Grace teaches us that God has done all the work and God has freely presented the gift, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. He's done all the work. He's paid the penalty. He's died in our place. He's risen from the dead. He's done all the work. And yet He gives us the choice. It's, it's difficult. What, like, why don't you force your way into everyone's life, God? Why don't you make everyone see who you really are? Why don't you commandeer every ship that you've created? Why don't you coerce? Why don't you sneak on when no one's looking? Like, I kind of wish he did that. Because I know myself, and there's lots of times that I leave him out at sea and say, you know what, I got this one on my own. There's a lot of people I know that leave Jesus out on the sea and say, I'm good. And yet that's what God does. He simply waits patiently, knocks softly, and enters your life fully only if you are willing to receive Him. Because this strange grace of God works in this way. It's also the reason why all people in all places at all times can receive this grace. There is not one prerequisite that you must achieve prior to Jesus standing outside your ship and asking, can I come aboard? You can be living in sin and doubt and chaos and fear and anxiety, even open rebellion. And Jesus is still standing there and saying, can I come aboard? It's only after he comes on board that he starts to change you. Can't get that backwards. You don't need to clean yourself up You don't need to get rid of all your anxiety and all your fear so that Jesus now feels ready to come on board. No, he changes all of that when he comes on board. The order here is really important. Some of you might not feel ready because you still feel fear and you're still terrified of death and you're still... No, no, no. That's exactly the right place to be to say, I think I need outside help. Jesus, would you come on board? You don't have to wait another minute to invite him to come on board. Do you believe that? Do you know that? That's how grace works. Grace says, you can have me as you are, but I won't leave you as you are. I will change your circumstance. I will change you. And that's what I love about verse 21. How are we supposed to take this? Then they were willing to take him on board and at once... The boat was at the shore where they were heading. Now my guess is they're like still a mile, two miles out. So what do they mean at once? Or in your translation might say immediately. I don't think we're talking here about a supernatural transportation and now they're just there. Not that that's beyond Jesus, but I don't think that's the way John writes or the way it happened. And I think what's happening is that he's saying immediately... Everything changed. The fear wasn't the same as it once was, and definitely the sea wasn't the same as it once was. It calmed. And they were still rowing, but the rowing felt much easier. Matthew and Mark talk about these waves calming, which of course makes the rowing easier, doesn't it? So immediately... Things changed, and it made their rest of their trip to the destination feel like, what a second. And I rather like that description of life with Jesus on board. 
Same sea, same troubles, same distance to go, same natural strengths of the rowers. It's not like these disciples just became world-class rowers. But for some incalculable, unexplainable, almost mysterious reason, the rowing gets much easier. That's been my experience with Jesus on board. Troubles don't go away. The sea is still a bit scary. There's still a ways to go. But for some reason, the rowing feels easier. Have you had that experience? Can somebody say amen? Have you had that experience? It just feels easier, and you can't quite understand why. We got one extra person on the boat. should be a bit harder, but everything's easier. This is a great description for me of life with Jesus. It doesn't mean life's not hard. It doesn't mean struggles don't come. It doesn't mean suffering doesn't happen, but somehow it just feels a little easier. So I started today with a floating story, and I'd like to end with a floating song. You guys love it when I bring up my songs. Now, I never knew this about this song. Turns out this song is a gospel song. You're not going to know it when you hear who wrote the song. It's a little song called Float On by Modest Mouse. Fun story, Modest Mouse went to my high school. And there's a little song by Modest Mouse called Float On. You may have heard it. And upon further review, it is truly a gospel song. So I want to read you the lyrics and see if you can follow with me. You ready? Verse 1. This is so fun. It's like American popular song with Dave. Okay. I backed my car into a cop car the other day. Well, he just drove off. Sometimes life's okay. I ran my mouth off a bit too much. Oh, what did I say? Well, you just laughed it off. It was all okay. And we'll all float on. Okay? And we'll all float on. Okay. And we'll all float on anyway. This is God's gift of mercy. You back your car into a cop car. (laughs) We back our our car into God's car all the time. And by the grace of Jesus Christ, he forgives us. It's all okay. We'll float on. Let's go, next verse. A fake Jamaican took every last dime with that scam. I just want to know the story. (laughs) It was worth it just to learn some sleight of hand. Bad news comes, don't you worry, even when it lands. Good news will work its way to all them plans. We both got fired on exactly the same day. Well, we'll float on. Good news is on the way. Never saw it until this week. Good news is on the way. Yes, bad news comes into all of our lives. Storms come sea churns, the chaos, but good news is on the way. That's the message of Scripture. That's the message of God. That's the message incarnate. Good news is here. Not just on the way, he's here. He's standing outside of our boat. And what is he singing? Let's read the chorus one more time. And we'll all float on, okay? We'll all float on, okay? We'll all float on, okay? He has to say it three times. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we'll all float on, all right? All right, already. We'll all float on. Even if you're worried, we'll all float on. Good news is on the way. And that's what happened. The same angel, the message, messenger of the Lord, the message incarnate, the word incarnate, stood outside their little raft, their dinghy, their inner tube, and said, may I come aboard? I told you good news was on the way, and I'm here. May I come on board? The sea is dangerous. Death is real. But so is God. And you have one of two ways to navigate the sea in your life with some friends, by yourself, 
or with the good news incarnate right by your side, speaking to you, encouraging you, guiding you, giving you access to a way of life and a peace that's unexplainable until you arrive on that good shore one day. Would you pray with me? All right. We hear you, God. We hear your sweet, sweet offer to live with us, to float with us, even when the sea seems unavoidable, even when the desert feels just desert. You prove time and time again that you are near to us. God, if it's been a while since we've invited you into our life, or maybe this morning is the first time for a lot of people that they, they've heard about you walking on the water, and they've heard this invitation that you give them to invite you into their life, God, would you give us a confidence that is beyond our mind and beyond our emotion, and would you move on our will so that we too could say, we receive you. Jesus, come into our life, come into our vessel, guide us, be our captain. And if somebody prayed that prayer tonight, today, and and, and asked you, God, would you just right now, immediately, give them that peace and that new life that you promised and that you showed to these disciples? Would the rowing just get a little easier and would they be able to recognize it's just a little easier because you're with them? So we thank you, God, for being with us. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying and rising again and sending your spirit so that no matter where we are, you are near to us. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.